I live in Louisiana. I remember when Alton Sterling was killed. I remember seeing the video of Alton Sterling and then, you know, turning over to going to sleep and then hearing another ping on my phone and looking, opening my phone. And then immediately thereafter on my timeline came the video of Philando Castile. As a second video is released showing another angle of the deadly shooting of 37-year-old Alton Sterling. This new video showing one officer pinning Sterling to the ground while another officer kneels on his arm outside of Baton Rouge convenience store. You can see one officer drawing his gun and moments later, shots fired. And I remember laying in my bed, enraged, sad, and thinking like, is this what it means to be a black person in America, you know, in present day, that you can, you know, watch a modern day lynching and then have to turn over or go to sleep, wake up and go to work the next morning um, as if nothing is, has happened or nothing is wrong. We're waiting for a bet. I will, sir. No worries. I will. Viewed more than one million times this before being taken fire down fire. on Facebook. Will, the video shows a traffic stop turned deadly. 32-year-old Philando Castile, along with his girlfriend and her child, pulled over last night, the beginning of the incident not on tape. But Castile was shot, his arm bloodied. The woman in shock, but continuing to live stream the situation on Facebook. She says the officer fired, reportedly four times. Castile, transported to the hospital, later dies from his injuries. You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, we have the conversations that matter to us, conversations that lead to solutions. See, racism is like that superbug. Every movement, every attempt to treat its devastating symptoms is only become more clever, more invisible, and harder to kill. That's Matthew Kincaid, the founder of Overcoming Racism. At Solution Sessions in Atlanta, he explained how racism functions like a virus, leaving people like Philando Castile and Alton Sterling in its wake. Once you start thinking about America as an infected country full of infected people moving through infected systems, it's easy to see the symptoms everywhere, in our criminal justice system, in our healthcare, in our political system. The tendrils of this virus make their way through society. But the most dangerous diseases are the ones that can lurk without showing obvious symptoms. Infected people can spread disease without even knowing they're sick. Entire populations become tainted before people even acknowledge there's a problem. This is a superbug. This bacteria has the ability to resist the effects of medicine previously used to treat its symptoms, effectively becoming more dangerous, more insidious, and more pervasive with each attempt to cure its devastating symptoms. Think about the way that a virus spreads. Viruses, and there are many different kinds of them, can be scattered with each particle of saliva and mucus. When one sneezes or coughs, for instance. But do not think for a moment that cold-producing viruses are spread only by sneezing and coughing. If by some magic, the tiny particles of saliva and mucus could be made visible as a black smudge, 
we quickly would realize in how many other ways we are apt to scatter bacteria and viruses all around us. If racism is a virus and our community is infected, this virus has infiltrated our country on a systemic level. We've been taught to function as if systemic racism doesn't exist, so we're living in a country full of people refusing to believe they're sick. But the thing about viruses is they infect entire communities, whether folks believe in them or not. I think the um, analogy to viruses or infections does make sense when it comes to hate crimes, because what we've seen, I mean, the reasoning behind the uptick in hate crimes, for example, over the election, has to do with the kind of rhetoric that we saw in the campaign. That's Heidi Byrick. She tracks hate crimes for the Southern Poverty Law Center. My co-host Eve's Jeff Code and I interviewed Heidi, who says there's definitely a spreading effect. There's been research actually recently from the University of Warwick that tracked Donald Trump's tweets that were racist or bigoted and actually connected them literally to hate crimes. The study did the same thing showing that anti-Muslim speech from a particular political party in Germany, the alternative for Germany, which is rapidly anti-Muslim, was also connected to hate violence. So it makes sense in this kind of pathological way. What do you think, Eves? Yeah, I think if we're talking about how racism has spread like a virus, we really see that exploding since the election, since the 2016 presidential election. But that wasn't where it started. It's, people like to make it seem like, oh, well, there's just been this explosion of racism or hate because Trump and his cronies are in office. But we know that racism has been present in America and throughout all of the systems in America, like education and healthcare, forever, really. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think that for a while, people's racism kind of came out in a little bit more of a covert way. I do think that Donald Trump made it in vogue again to be overtly racist, and you didn't have to code it in these dog whistles anymore. Honestly, I, I kind of agree with Heidi that it, he's sort of 2018's patient zero if you're thinking about racism as a virus. I think it's really funny that you use the word in vogue because it just like triggers triggers me to think about fashion and how like it's this cool thing. And I think a lot of people think about it that way. Like it's cool to hop on this bandwagon, like contrary to the like, oh, it's cool to be woke. It's cool to be liberal. It's cool to be a social justice activist. It also seems like on the other side, like it's cool to be <laughs> a Nazi. We're the big dog and we sit wherever we want because America is the best and everybody recognizes that. And maybe sometimes they're jealous, but maybe they should be. Repeat after me. I'm a proud Western chauvinist. I'm a proud Western chauvinist. And I refuse to apologize. I refuse to apologize. For creating the modern world. For creating the modern world. Yeah, it's like it's cool to be holding a tiki torch in a street and screaming at a mother for speaking Spanish in a cafe. I think, I think we've reached a point where that's kind of its own form of cool at this point. Right. And those instances, if we're talking about virality, those instances spread through social media. And I think when other people see the tiki torches and people screaming and spitting in others' faces, that maybe we are desensitized to it, but also that people are inspired by it. And it's hard not to be desensitized to it when our president is tweeting hateful, overt, racist stuff pretty much every day. Ugh, like, right, like, let's not even start with that. Like, 
of course, Twitter, a place where everything spreads, news, hatefulness, joy sometimes, black joy. <laughs> but yeah, um, his tweets and he's he's really used a platform which one can say is kind of like good for diversifying and speaking about issues that may not be spoken about in normal media or news outlets. He's really used that to his advantage to be a huge asshole. But that assholeness, it's not confined to just his office. It's the whole world that gets to hear him. This racism being spread, it's not just Throughout America, it's like everybody gets to see, everybody gets to see our ass. (laughs) So I feel like when a lot of people think about racism, they think about men marching in the streets and sort of being mean to people of color. And they kind of forget that it's so systemic. Right. It's not just these singular instances or aggressions necessarily. It's things that are really entrenched deeply into the different systems that are at work in America. Yeah, and I feel like we throw this idea of, quote, broken systems around. But really, these systems aren't really broken. They're actually functioning the exact way they were designed to function, which is locking Black folks out while giving white folks a leg up. Yes, these systems that were created are running, like you said, are running exactly as they're supposed to. And that means that they're marginalizing people perpetually. And that means that they're oppressing people perpetually. And that means that these systems are continually holding Black people down. Yeah, and more than that, they're holding us down while half the country is not even willing to acknowledge they even exist. So it's like we're functioning in this fucked up system and half the people are like, what fucked up system? You know, if we're going to ever truly root out systemic racism, it has to start with education of ourselves and all of us, you know, across the country, looking in the mirror to think about how was this system created, what it was created for, how it's maintained, And through understanding that, we can work to unravel ourselves from it. In many ways, systemic racism um, is just as American as apple pie or any other, or baseball or whatever the case may be. And so envisioning an America without racism is not easy. But we have to, you know, be able to envision that if we're going to ever work towards that end. We'll talk more about racism as a virus after this quick break. At Solution Sessions, panelist Melissa Harris-Perry described how the disease of racism shows up in our bodies. Life and death consequences. That that movement, that shape-shifting, that thinking, that twisting, that turning, that constant thinking and having to strategize about every damn moment of your life literally changes your biochemistry. It it changes the ends of your DNA. The fibroids are not the fried chicken. I wish they were. I mean, the fried chicken is the the clogged arteries. That is a different thing. But the thing that's going on inside of our bodies is the racism. That that is the manifestation. It's the fucking tiki torches. It is the manifestation of, it ain't microaggressions. These are not microaggressions. These are just aggressions. And having to bob and weave around them 24-7 is actually a lot. And it shows up in our schools. For centuries in this country, people of color were denied the chance to an education. That mutated into school segregation, which has mutated into our school system today that is still failing black and brown kids and has resisted every movement for change. 
Matthew is from Louisiana. He founded Overcoming Racism, an organization that works with schools, teachers, and young people to tackle systemic oppression and racism. The same way that teachers report pink eye and check kids for lice, Matthew thinks schools need to be the first line of defense at inoculating against the virus of systemic racism. Because you can't get well if you don't acknowledge you're sick. Oftentimes, school environments promote a myth of meritocracy, this notion that if you just work hard and if you just show more grit, then um, that is the ingredient to overcome any systemic barrier that's in your way. But when you tell a kid who is on the receiving end of generational poverty, um, manufactured generational poverty through, you know, redlining policy, um, you know, through employment discrimination, you, you name it, um, the kid is on the receiving end of generational lack of access to quality education, that all they need to do is just work their way out of it. Um, that's a really unfair message to provide a child without providing any sort of historical or present-day um, context of sociopolitical awareness around the obstacles that they're navigating in a daily lived experience. So if racism is a superbug, it's infected every aspect of our country, and its legacy is still tainting the systems and machinery that we move through today. After World War II, the country enacted the GI Bill to help returning soldiers buy homes to ease them back into civilian life through low-cost mortgages and low-interest loans. Now, my grandfather, he served in World War II, but when he came home, he was barred from taking part of the same system that all his white peers were benefiting from. So my grandfather's white peers, they start out their civilian life being set up with this nice nest egg in the form of their home, and he doesn't. So when it comes time to send their sons to college, who is an easier time? And while grandpa's white peers are able to pass that house he got that sweet deal on down to his adult son to set him up with a comfortable life early on, well, my grandpa, he can't do the same with my dad. And that white son, maybe he grows up to have a kid of his own. And when that kid's old enough for college, he can use that house as collateral to pay for it. Meanwhile, by virtue of policies that were racist by design, that some historians actually say were deliberately designed to accommodate Jim Crow, my grandfather, my father, and me are all shut out of generations of opportunity that our white peers always had access to. What people refuse to acknowledge is that because we have not directly addressed the past inequities, right, they've just continued and morphed into inequities exist today. You know, you can look across the country, you know, redlining is not, is no longer legally enforceable, but, you know, there are banks that are settling losses all over the nation for excluding people of color, having exclusionary lending practices for people of color who have the credit score and who have the down payment, but still are not being rented homes in certain neighborhoods because of fear that they're going to reduce property values. One of the things that people often say is like, well, no, this isn't a race issue, this is a class issue. But when you, you know, really boil down the data, that doesn't bear out truth. And so, you know, when we look at the incarceration rate in this country, when we look at the healthcare disparities, when we look at education disparities, considering the fact that we're more segregated now than we were 40 years ago, when we look at disparities in housing lending, and then now the onset of gentrification, which is pushing people of color out of the inner city environments that they were relegated to for numbers of years, when we look across all of these different perspectives, what we see is that these policies that existed in the past have really been perfected. Let me ask you something, and um, be honest. Do you think there's a black lawyer who's as good as your cousin? There definitely is, but um, part of being good at your job are your connections, and black people just don't have the connections that my cousin has. For systemic reasons. 
systemic racism is first and foremost a system of advantage. And when we talk about racism, one of the things that we talk about most often is how systemic racism adversely affects people of color. But we don't talk about the other side of that coin, which is that the system is set up to, you know, provide advantages to white people. And that's one of the truths that, for whatever reason, it seems easier to acknowledge the pain and the oppression and the violence that systemic racism levies on the bodies of people of color. But for some reason, it's much more challenging for us as a nation to address the fact that the entire system was set up to benefit um, a small minority of people. And that minority of people that was set up to benefit has grown and expanded over time. But, you know, people didn't mistreat other people just because they didn't like them or didn't understand them. These systems were set up to create distinct advantages for some um, by, you know, creating out and out group to solidify power within a collective in-group. A lot of white people may see the ways that black folks are set up to be treated as second-class citizens in America. But they'll probably be less willing to admit how that same system that oppresses us was set up to give them benefits and advantages that they've been benefiting from their entire lives. Now, this is what Matthew calls the asset value of whiteness. If you look at the wealth gap in this country, there's a phenomenal piece called the asset value of whiteness. You know, people say, well, the, the reason, reason why, why black, black families, families uh, it's not racism, right? It's, it's you know, there's just too, too many, many homes without black, without black fathers. fathers in the home. And if, if, if black people would just invest in the institution of marriage, marriage, if black fathers would stay in the home, then there would be no, no gap. Gaps. But if you look at the gaps in wealth, black two-parent households have about half the net wealth as white single-parent households. You say, well, no, it's not systemic racism, it's education. If people in the black community would just double down and focus on their education, then, you know, that would close these gaps. It's not systemic racism, it's, it's, it's a it's cultural a thing. Cultural they're just, thing. They don't care about their education. If you look at the data around wealth, you know, black families who've graduated from college have significantly less net wealth than white families who have some or no college. Well, well it's because, because they're, they're lazy. lazy. They just don't want to, they don't want to work. You know, but then you look at the data and you find out that black families with full-time work have less net wealth than white families with part-time work. But a boy born black and rich in America, well, there's a strong chance he won't. When you account for things like education and income level, disparities along racial lines still persist. Now, if you want a visual representation of how this plays out, check out the New York Times piece in the show notes. There are all these messages that we've created as a culture and a community to help us to explain to our young people, you know, how to stay safe in a culture, in a system that is inherently violent towards them, right? We teach our young people how to stay alive in encounters with the police rather than teaching law enforcement officers how not to kill our young people who are unarmed and, and bright and full of potential. We teach our young people how to run faster and jump higher over the hurdles where systemic racism places in their way but we don't necessarily always, as a collective group of adults of all races, think about how can we create a level playing field for all kids. Line up, everybody line up. We're about to race. Everybody line up. Hey, we are, we are racing for a $100 bill. So we do one activity in our workshop. It's a level playing field activity. Um, you know, we realist, you people have seen it probably online, but you realize the statements and you know, people privileged end up in the front and people who have marginalized um, ideas end up in the back. And at the end of the activity, we have folks run to this line of success. And so obviously the metaphor, you know, people who are in the front are kind of right there. People who are in the back are really, you know, busting their tail to get there. And one of the things that I talk about after that activity, once we kind of talked about it and debriefed it, is that, well, there's a few things. Number one, for the people in the back, you know, because of proximity, you're not even really running against the people in the front. The people in the front 
have already pretty much, you know, been placed very close to the finish line. And so because of that, right, many times we're placed in positions where we feel like we're running against one another. And so we see things, we see things like internalized oppression playing out in our community as we're all trying to run this collective race to, you know, reach this kind of artificial line of success. But the other thing is, is that sometimes these are adults with the activity. You see people who are way in the back, right? And I tell them to run to the line of success and they just freeze or they walk because, you know, the activity in many ways is kind of silly. And I always ask the participants, what do we say about kids who see very critically and very intelligently just how unfair the situation that they've been placing is, and they choose not to play the game, right? They choose not to, like, run this rat race um, in this race that they were intended to fail. Um, And we say all kind of negative things about those young people. And then what do we say to the young people who have been running this, this race and running it perfectly, the time that they're 16 or 17 or 20 or 21, they're exhausted, right, before they've even had a chance to really live their lives. We don't want to recognize that we've been given a head start. But the reality is we have. Now, there's no excuse. You need to be twice as good is a common refrain a lot of us grew up with. And in many ways, that is true. And there are actually a lot of studies that would that would suggest that that is true. But it makes me think of the story of John Henry. And, you know, in the story of John Henry, John Henry, this African-American man, you know, early 1900s, he, his entire identity, you know, is wrapped up in this notion that he could lay down railroad tracks faster than any other person. And so, well, what does a railroad company do? They create a machine, they create a machine that can lay down railroad tracks faster than any man. And so John Henry tells the railroad company, there is, there is no way that this machine can beat me. And so he races the machine, and he wins. But he dies at the end of the story. And in many ways, I think that is the story of being black in America. We constantly teach our young people to race against this machine, to be just that much smarter, to be just that much stronger, to run just that much faster, to work just that much harder. Matthew says that we ask black youth to be that much better, stronger, and faster to compete in a race where they're set up to fail. And we do so without thinking much about the toll it takes on their mental health and overall well-being. But if we really cared about setting them up for success... Then they would, instead of asking, you know, people of color to run faster or to be better, they would, you know, ask, why are they running this race in the first place? We'll be back with more solution sessions after this break. What are the unwritten rules of being Black in America that you've internalized? Hmm. Well, a few I can think of are don't be too aggressive, especially for Black women. <laughs> don't be too loud. What else? What else, Bridget? Uh, don't walk too quickly behind someone. Hmm. Yeah. Don't make any sudden movements when dealing with police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't exist. How yeah, about that one? Basically, just don't be a human body in public. Just never leave your house, never leave your home. Right. That's, that's not okay, right? Yeah, we're, we're kind of joking about it, but it, it, it can really, us just existing or leaving the house can lead to extreme and serious harm and even death, right? Just look at some of the recent headlines. Don't play golf too slowly. Don't stay at an Airbnb. Don't try to get into your own home. Don't sit on your own stoop. Don't barbecue in a park. Don't look at somebody wrong. Really, just don't do anything. Right. 
Every Sunday after church when I was growing up, we'd drive to the Applebee's at the Regency Square Mall in mm. Richmond, Virginia classy. for dinner. <laughs> well, it was classy. It was also known as the White Mall in the nice part of town. So after we parked, my parents would line all the kids up against the car, our backs literally touching the car door. No begging, no stealing, no running, no jumping. Don't ask me for anything. Right. Don't talk too loud. Don't touch anything. Don't embarrass me in here. All these rules. All these rules. I can almost say them by heart. But I later found out these rules don't apply to everybody. Dr. Joy DeGruy uh, wrote a book called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And she talks in her talk about, you know, like, imagine a black kid in a bank, like a little kid, maybe five, or some important place. And so she asked her audience, you know, when she's speaking to the audience, she asked them, you know, what are the rules? You know, she asked black people, what are the rules that you tell your kid before you go on a bank? And it's kind of a funny moment because there are some, in some ways, these universal rules, right? It's like, you know, don't say anything, stay close to me, and um, don't touch anything, right? Like, you know, don't embarrass me in this bank. This is, you know, this is, you know, we care a lot about how people perceive us in public as a result of people judging our entire race, on the, you know, based upon the actions of some. You just gave me a flashback to my childhood. You just gave, that right, was like yeah. a real, like, yeah, right. mother. So without, I kind of forgot. With, with, yeah, like, without even knowing. Yeah, I, I, and you said that, and I, I had completely blacked this out of my, of my adult life, but that before we went into a store or a mall or especially a bank, we got a talking to that was, don't touch anything, don't ask for anything, don't embarrass me, don't run around, you know. And I think I did not even realize until this moment that that, where that comes from. So you imagine this little black kid in this bank, right? And it's obviously a metaphorical situation, but they see a white kid in the bank, right? And just in this example, the white kid is making noise. The white kid is moving around. The white kid is touching things. Subconsciously, that's doing something really distinct for this kid. First, this white kid is breaking all of the rules, right? Like, these are the rules. You told me that these are the rules. So I would imagine these rules apply to everybody. This kid's breaking all the rules, and I'm noticing that none of the adults in this setting are reacting to that. This kid is breaking the rules, but it doesn't, you know, for me, the world will be ending right now. But for this kid, the world isn't ending, right? As we internalize the rules, we also realize that other kids live by a totally different set. And while not having the freedom to misbehave in public doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world, it's one way that we internalize that white kids are inherently born with freedoms that we'll never have. From the moment we're born, we're picking up cues about how we're supposed to behave and internalizing them like a rule book. And so we've gotten very good at training at a very early age our young people to live out realities of what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be heterosexual, what it means to be a, a person of color or a white person. Um, and then institutions do a very good job of reinforcing that. The, the thing that is most important in this is that as we get older, we get rewards for staying in the lane that we're assigned. And you get punishments if you step outside of that, right? And so it's very hard once we've been socialized to question our socialization and to act outside of that socialization. America has always had a love-hate relationship with Blackness. America loves Black music. America loves Black fashion. And America really loves it when Black athletes win championships. But when they get loud about systemic racism and oppression, well, that's where the love affair ends. 
As the crowd and players stand, you can see Kaepernick kneeling on the sideline. Teammate Eric Reed joining him. Going to stay. And he's receiving heavy boos here. Kaepernick says he's willing to make real change and plans on donating a million dollars to charities that he's been working with to help end racial inequality. I think the, the perfect example of this is Colin Kaepernick. Because if you look at the NFL, you know, there's all manner of criminals that exist or, or people who've committed crimes that exist in the NFL, right? People who beat their wives, people who, um, you know, have committed sexual assault, people who killed people, you know, you name it, um, they're in the NFL. But Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed choosing to kneel and, to, uh, you know, to make a statement against white supremacy, that is not allowed in America. That is fundamentally against the rules, right? And so you no longer, you know, the punishment that has to come with that is you no longer can exist in this space. You can do all of these things that we expect of you, but if you step outside and you challenge this system, there, there are consequences to that. Um, and that's what keeps people in their lane. And so it's really hard for us to break out of our socialization because, you know, we learn at an early age. We're rewarded if we operate within our socialization, and we're punished socially if we choose to operate outside of that. We had a case where we had an African-American guy who was a fan of mine. Great fan. Great guy. In fact, I want to find out what's going on with him. You know what I'm... Oh, look at my African-American over here. Look at him. Are you the greatest? Do you know what I'm talking about? This becomes especially tricky when you think about the ways that our president signals to black folks that we'll be rewarded for staying in our lanes. He does this by strategically surrounding himself with black spokespeople while also publicly berating black folks who challenge his racist policies and actions. He does this while aligning himself with white racists. Luther and I and everyone in this arena tonight are unified by the same great American values. We're proud of our country. We respect our flag. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! And in this way, the virus finds itself moving along social pathways, from one tweet to another, as Heidi points out. When an important figure goes out and takes to social media, Donald Trump, of course, is a fan of Twitter, but there are other you know, places you could do this, just in the media in general or on other platforms. When that happens and they express bigoted or racist statements, there is a direct connection from that and that hatred kind of, you know, pulsing through our society, largely through online networks. And real violence, it, it connects with certain people who maybe, maybe they already have an issue with uh, certain people of color or certain religions. Maybe they don't, but it's a tripwire into hate crimes. And, you know, there's a certain amount of giving license to someone's bigoted ideas when a public figure takes them up, right? It's one thing if somebody nobody knows says, I hate all Muslims. It's another thing when a candidate for the presidency says, I want them all banned from the country because they're all terrorists. You only need to look at recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia, to see how an important figure like Donald Trump is playing into the idea of staying in your lane and not speaking out against evil when you see it. We've made the threshold of racism so high that, in, that if you're not carrying a tiki torch in Charlottesville and the president actually came out and raised the threshold even higher than that because he said that there are some fine people out there who are carrying tiki torches. We've raised the threshold to be racist so high that no one qualifies. This racism, this virus, is making us all sick. So what do we do? Well, first, we don't fall back on platitudes. 
Here's Matthew at Solution Sessions in Atlanta. Contrary to popular belief, love does not cure white supremacy. Gradualism does not cure white supremacy. And colorblindness does not dismantle white supremacy. If we're going to dismantle white supremacy, it will take intentional policy interventions. But if we have not yet dismantled white supremacy in this country, we certainly need to teach our students how to navigate it when they're in schools. And this is the same deputy who overpowered a female high school student who had been told to leave class for using her cell phone. Classmate Nia Kennedy was also arrested after speaking out. I was crying, like literally screaming, crying like a baby. The disturbing video shot by another student in algebra class is causing a nationwide uproar. It's hard to explain that one. It is disturbing to say the very least. It's time for America to stop pretending that it dislikes racism and actually to begin to dislike racism. And when I go around the country, people say things like, well, but haven't things gotten better? Aren't there some universal things that we can agree that we've done in the past that were bad? And my answer to that is, if we agree that there are some things we've done in the past that are bad, we certainly have a funny way of showing it. Matthew says representation, like black kids seeing themselves in films like Black Panther, is one small way of helping set them up for success. When these kids found out their whole school was going to see the new Marvel film Black Panther, they threw an impromptu dance party. The kids all go to the Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta, and the film screening is part of a two-week African immersion project for Black History Month. I mean, I think that there is no one thing that is a cure-all for systemic racism. The reason why I was, you know, racism is systemic is because it impacts people of color and white people across, um, you know, all of these different sectors. You know, education, healthcare, media, you know, employment—you name it. So there isn't one kind of cure-all. But I will say that you know, representation certainly matters. Um, you know, your ability to see yourself as successful, your ability to see yourself um, as somebody who looks like whatever it is you want to be when you grow up, I think has a, a, a direct impact on, you know, the pursuits and the strivings of our young people. While Matthew says culture can function as medicine to build the self-esteem kids need to function in the world, he's clear that we need more than movies to understand and break apart systemic oppression. And that's where our focus should be as adults. It builds racial pride, um, which I think builds students' armor to navigate, you know, the oppressive systems that they have to navigate you know throughout their lives however you know as adults we still have to focus on dismantling those oppressive systems in addition to public policy another way to combat the virus of systemic racism is white people having a better understanding of it if you refuse to properly diagnose a sickness you're only ensuring that it lingers and gets worse most reasonable people if asked would say racism is bad slavery was bad genocide is bad but how many of them are actually living lives intentionally dedicated to anti-racism and anti-oppression. And while they're busy patting themselves in the back for taking the bold stance that racism is bad, would they even know what living a life dedicated to anti-racism actually looked like? And have they acknowledged the racist notions lurking in their friends, their family, and most importantly, themselves? But people will come up to me, 
at social gatherings, at in public, whatever, and they'll you know strike a conversation. And what they really want to tell me at the end of the conversation is, I'm not racist, right? That's kind of the either they will come out and say that, or the underlying thing is they want me as the anti-racism guy to, I don't know, give them a safety pin or a stamp of approval or a sticker or a high five and say, like, you got it. Um, for someone who says, you know, I'm not racist, that doesn't really, if that is possible, that doesn't do anything to change the lived experience that people of color are living on a daily basis. Um, and it doesn't do anything to change the fact that the system of racism pro- provides advantages um, to the people who are oftentimes saying, I'm not racist. And so what I ask people is, are you intentionally anti-racist? And when you ask somebody that, it's kind of a funny moment because, you know, the look on people's faces, like, really changes. Being racist means you are bad, right? And so, you know, you can call a white person almost any name in the book, but if you call a white person racist, that's, like, the worst thing you can call them, right? Like, that is the the easiest way to get a white person defensive is to call them racist. But we need folks to challenge themselves to think critically about race and whiteness and the roles they play in keeping a systematically sick machine churning. A vast majority of Americans are racially illiterate. And you can grow up in America, go through our entire education system, from pre-K through 12, through college, through graduate school, and never one time have to critically analyze whiteness, never one time have to critically analyze how systemic racism functions in our society. You can be extremely well-educated, you can have a great job, you can make good money, you can be influential, and never in your life had to face the reality of how systemic racism creates disparate outcomes for people along racial lines. And that's the rub of white supremacy. The racial lines that systemic racism draw along set up a blueprint for othering in society. Political disenfranchisement, chronic health disparities, economic injustice, unfair media portrayals, all that bullshit. We have to break the machine that sets us up to be systematically less than. My kids come from kings and queens, artists and revolutionaries, visionaries and activists. And if we don't protect their heart, their mind and their spirit, then our future is doomed. We realize that it's not enough to just be aware of the illness. We've got to treat it. And Matthew was right. Our community is full of people who are talented, intelligent, and relentless in their pursuit of freedom and justice. And there's strength in that. Because even though the world consistently tries to tell us we're not good enough, we know we've got the power to make real change. Let's fight the forces that other us. Let's silence the voices that tell us we are not worthy of love or respect. Let's resist the systems that threaten to stunt our growth and keep us from being our best selves. We are not powerless against our oppressors. We have the solution. What's the solution, Bridget? Educate yourself and keep educating youth. What's the solution, Bridget? Be intentionally anti-racist. What's the solution, Bridget? Listen, don't speak. What's the solution, Bridget? Don't stay in your lane. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and How Stuff Works. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive co-producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and Kathleen Quillian is audio engineer. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our on-the-ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. 
To learn more about Matthew Kincaid's Overcoming Racism training and coaching organization, check out OvercomeRacism.com. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Afropunk. <laughs>